I mean, what's my football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? We got legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast, Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson. We're live here on YouTube and rounding out post-draft week here with some more awesome uh, football analysis, Sam. we got more football to talk about. Yeah, at least for now. At least for now, until <laughs> we get into the fun offseason stuff. Um, anyway, we reviewed every single team's draft. We did it in order of the teams that we like. So we finished with the Steelers at pick 32. Just kidding. It was alphabetical by division. Um, so we have all that. If you haven't listened to uh, either your favorite team or other teams, listen to our hours and hours. What did we do? About eight hours or so uh, after, of course, covering the draft last weekend. So those were our last four shows. We went division by division, team by team. Uh, today we're going to talk a little you know, fifth-year options. There's some big contracts being sa- uh, handed out. Look at that. I got my volume up loud. Mm. I usually have it on mute. I did not no. for that one second. Didn't. So we got uh, the defensive tackle market to talk about. Let's talk a little market analysis for defensive tackles. There are some recent uh, re-signings and regular signings. And, uh, again, the fifth-year options for the 2020 NFL draft class. Had a lot of emails flying in to uh, give us potential show ideas, topic ideas. We asked for that at the end of last show. Um, We're hitting the offseason now. It's May the 5th. Uh, Cinco de Mayo. It is Cinco de Mayo. Um, So we're reaching the point where there's nothing happening for a while, you know. And we're going to have some good stuff to get through. We've got some ideas of our own. They'll be able to, I think this is an off season for experimentation on the podcast. You know, we were thinking, you know, ranking football movies, that kind of thing. Yeah. And maybe some road trips. Go full, you know, good morning football out here. Yeah, what's the movie that we could rank in this Monday in the middle of June yeah, when good, nothing's happening? Good morning football has a lot of content right. to, uh, to fill. So in we're in that season. world now. Um, we've got some good ideas flying through, but NFL podcast at pff.com. If you want to send more ideas our way, you will find that email at all times in my Twitter bio if you forget about it. And then uh, really quickly, for all those draft bets that were made, uh, you paid those out, right? You, we, we paid off. Not me personally, but I saw two of them being on behalf of PFF. Exactly. Uh, Everybody that won a draft bet should have had an email with their PFF Plus account. There was one guy that already had one. We tacked on a free year to his account and let him know. So, yeah, everyone that we read out on the show should have been hooked up via email. Just making sure that we uh, made it it clear that we pay off our bets. Oh, yeah, we pay out. We also... Pay the bills with Western and Southern. The PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow? Well, Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash PFF. All right, Sam, what do you want to start today? Do a little uh, talk about 50-year options? Yeah. We've been, uh, I'm not teasing that. We've been saying we we're going to talk about that all week, so let's get to it. All right, so uh, just a reminder what the fifth-year option looks like. We're talking about the 2020 NFL draft class. So they have all played three seasons. They've been in the league, 20, 21, and 22. And now they, the NFL says you have to do, declare if you want to pick up this player's fifth-year option before their fourth season. The difference now, too, is this, once you pick it up, it is now fully guaranteed due to, for, for injury. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a change that was made a couple of years ago and has decreased the number of fifth-year options that have been picked up. Now, overall, the fifth-year option is uh, it's a big, it's a much higher payday for all the first-rounders, but it's also very good market value relative to their position, basically. Um, so that's the, uh, you know, the high level view and, uh, several fifth year options have been declined, but I think the most notable name here is Jordan Love, who did not have his fifth year option accepted or declined. He restructured with the Packers, right? Basically a cheaper contract that can be earned uh, where he has the ability to earn more than what he would have made with the option. Yeah. I, 
I, strange deal, I think, generally. Uh, it felt like a sort of like an admission of lukewarm belief from both sides. You know, like Jordan Love can earn more money overall. On the other hand, the, the rest of the, the fifth year option would be fully guaranteed or would be guaranteed. And so essentially he's taking more money right now, like a signing bonus, uh, for less guarantees with the potential to earn slightly more overall, like $2 million. He's sacrificing something like 5 or $6 million in guaranteed money to get potentially $2 million of extra money over the top. And then from Green Bay's point of view, it's like if you don't believe in him or if you believed in him fully, this is not the deal you would be making. You know, it's like both sides are kind of like, eh, whatever. Just, just and, get something on paper. And if you're if you're in love, though, like you just, you know, you secured some money when it could have been, all right, we're going to pay you in year four, and then you really are on your own. But there if you were no, truly – There's no injury guarantee. Like if, if Green Bay was going to say, hey, we're not going to pick it up, you have no injury guarantee, you have no guarantee for anything in the fifth year, you do hedge just in case you're not that good. But some people have, have positioned this as, oh, Jordan Love is betting on himself. You know, if he was truly betting on himself, you would play out your fifth-year option, assume you're going to play well – and then cash in with monster money at the but end. But they of that might year. not even pick up his fifth-year option if he. But that's what I'm saying. Like, if, so you play out his fourth year. If you're if yeah. you're betting on yourself, you play out this year. You go to free agent, given the start, yeah. and whatever happens at the end of that, if you played well, you're getting monster money. Instead, he did this. Like that's not betting on yourself. What are you expecting from Jordan Love this year? I, Do you think he'll be good? I think there's this is one of the bigger story storylines around the NFL, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have expectations for him, to be honest. Nice. Not that I don't, and I don't mean that as in I, my expectations are low. I mean, I literally don't have any expectations. We've barely seen the guy on the football field. He was trash for the brief snippets we saw right at the start, and then he was good for the brief snap, snippets we saw last season. I don't know what you do with that. Like, it's, it's an insanely small sample size of play. The only, the, like, the best indicator so far, has been that Green Bay was happy enough to say, all right, now's the time. They, this, they're the team that sees him in practice. They, therefore, should have the best indication of what he's going to be. But who the hell knows? Like, we've no idea what he's going to look like. The, the, the things that are really interesting to me is I always talk about how I would stash quarterbacks and you never know what you have and all that stuff. I think the problem with my own strategy there is, okay, Jordan Love has sat for three years. If he does become good... Now, after sitting for three years, he becomes good in year four. You pretty much only get one essentially cheap year out of him, maybe two, and then you got to pay him anyway. Is that worth it, right? Is it is it worth it to – or is it just like, hey, I, we're just doing whatever we can to find the next quarterback, and you know we'll have a couple cheap years, and then we'll be fine to pay him, right? If Jordan Love is the guy, doesn't have to be the next Aaron Rodgers, but if he's our next guy, we'll be happy to pay him in two years. You know, so – how, how valuable is it to have him sit on the bench for your team? To have him sit on the bench for three years, you maybe get a year or two of him as a good starter. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I the most... it'll, it'll help answer some of those questions. It's also fascinating that it is literally the same thing that Aaron Rodgers did, sitting yeah. for three years, then becoming the guy. And as much as every time there's a first-round quarterback, we suggest maybe you, you like to play guys, I like to sit them, you know, at least for a year and all that stuff. It's, you know, kind of more data points for if you sit them, can you really – actually accelerate their development because Jordan Love on like 15 snaps last year looked so much better than he did previously for whatever that's worth. The most interesting thing about the deal that they did is that it only really makes sense from Jordan Love's point of view if they were planning on declining his fifth-year option, which you would assume was an automatic that they would pick it up after deciding they're turning it over because otherwise you end up in the Daniel Jones situation, right, where you turn down the fifth-year option and then he has a season that's just about good enough to warrant keeping him around. And now you're like, uh-oh, do I give him the franchise tag and I'm stuck with $45 million guaranteed or whatever? Or do we do the deal that they just had to do for Daniel Jones and lock him up for four years, like $160 million or whatever it is? Like you're tied to big money if you get to the end of this year. Jordan Love's played reasonably well and you didn't pick up that fifth-year option. You, you have to pay him a lot more money. So the fact that they were willing to turn the keys over to Jordan Love but not pick up that fifth-year option, if indeed that was the case. Like, that's the only way this deal, to me, makes sense, is if they were at least able to convince Jordan Love that they weren't picking up that option. So you have no expectations for Love? No, I mean, we're, 
let's sit back and see what he does. So coming out of the 2020 draft, I think there was there were a lot of rumors that Love would be picked in the first round. We saw him more as a second round, third round type of gamble, I thought. Really good tools. He had tape at Utah State that was all over the place. He also was one of those guys that was probably a little better his second to last year rather than his last year after scheme changes. He had a lot of volatility to his game, big-time throws, some crazy decisions. A lot of the crazy decisions carried over into his preseason play for the Packers. And then, yeah, we got to see one start. Aaron Rodgers missed one game in 2021 against the Chiefs. Jordan Love didn't look great in that game. And then we saw him in a relief outing last year. We saw him you know, a couple times, but really a relief outing in a blowout against the Eagles. Mm-hmm where Rodgers was banged up and Love comes in and he looked really good. I mean, the stats were out of this world because he was like six for nine for a buck 13 and yeah. a touchdown. That was Christian Watson running through the defense. But, but nine pass attempts. Yes. Is what we're but we're talking about nine pass attempts where it's like, hey, Love Love looks good now. Mm-hmm. And I, I, obviously we don't, we don't go crazy with sample sizes and stuff, but comfort level, I mean, things did look and feel different for whatever that's worth for nine passes. So Would I can't you, wait to see what, what Love looks like this season and, and what we get from him. With... Uh, so he was the guy that was essentially the fourth quarterback in that class where everybody was talking about Joe Burrow, Tua, Justin Herbert, and then J- Jordan Love was the next guy, and then Jalen Hurts ends up going in the second round, et cetera. Does the outcome so far of the quarterbacks in that draft class make you think any differently about Jordan Love in abstract terms? So one of the things I think that's difficult every year is you sort of look at these guys relative to the other guys in their class but i think it's more difficult to compare them to last year or the next year consistently right so jordan love was seen obviously as a step behind joe burrow to uh, uh justin herbert but those three guys if you take last season into account have all panned out two of them exceptionally well Jalen Hurts broke out last year and really has now become one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL. So it's like a really good class now. So yeah. the four quarterbacks either side of him are all good. Does that make you look back and say, well, he was in that category? Like he wasn't – he was a step behind those three guys and he was a step ahead maybe of, of Jalen Hurts, but he was at least – you know, you weren't looking at this guy and saying he didn't belong relative to those guys. Yeah, I don't think it changes what I was, my perception at the time. It is interesting looking back at that class and how much success they've had now, especially yeah. with Hurts and, and you know Tua's breakout season last year. I think I think the most interesting thing to me about Love is that he felt like a developmental prospect, right? It felt like he needed to clean up some decision making, but he had a lot of ability and tools, and he's gotten that, and he's he's had three years to you know to learn and pick it up and. I think there's a chance he gets gets out there and, and looks good. There's, but I think the, I think the most likely outcome is he lands right in that, or not the most likely outcome, but a very likely outcome is he ends up becoming that, dead smack in the middle mid tier quarterback, which doesn't mean he's QB fifteen. It means he's, any year anywhere between twelve and twenty five. That's where he's going to rank it. You know, as far as quarterbacks go, that's my that's my guess. Right? Could he become a top eight quarterback right away? Who knows? We haven't seen enough. But my guess is he lands right in the middle, and the Packers, just like maybe the Patriots with Mac Jones and anybody who has Derek Carr and anybody who has Kirk Cousins has these very difficult decisions to make with, you know, how much do you pay this guy? Do you let him go? Do you move on to Daniel Jones, right? All the, he probably lands right in that area, which maybe is even, is even better than I expected from him. I thought he was a project coming out. I mean, he was a project, but... The, but- you know, you've had multiple years. Of Maybe he still is being put together. So Jordan Love, the uh, the Packers are invested for the next couple of years. They've done a you know replenish the roster as we we broke down yesterday with fourteen draft picks. Can't wait to see what the what the Packers do. Would love this year. Uh, the other big names having their fifth year options declined. The biggest name is Chase Young, the number two overall pick from the Washington Commanders, the football team at the time. There's, I think there's a lot to unpack with Chase Young, but a couple others here. Number eight pick, overall pick, Isaiah Simmons from the Arizona Cardinals, denied. C.J. Henderson was with the Jaguars and then the Panthers, was traded to the Panthers. He was the ninth overall pick in the draft. Mekhi Becton, the offensive tackle from the Jets. We didn't love Becton as a prospect at the time, but he looked good when he was on the field. This has been more of an injury type of thing, 360 pounds with knee injuries and just has not been able to see the field. The number 11 pick, the Jets have declined that option. Javon Kinlaw for the 49ers and a whole bunch of other players we can get into in a minute. But Chase Young, man, like 
I still believe in Chase Young. I know there's the injuries. It sounds like Washington is, I don't know if it's injuries or attitude or something else in there. But I still think Chase Young looked like a, a top-tier edge when healthy. The problem is he hasn't been healthy since 2020, his rookie season. Yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I said it on the podcast, but when we first started talking about Washington throwing all the money at Deron Payne and the investment that they made on their defensive line, I'm pretty sure I said that there's a reasonable chance Chase Young is not going to be there long term. Like they're going to end up letting him walk. And this is obviously the first step along that road to decline his fifth year option. Uh, I think for, yeah, for Chase Young, it's been injury so far. But I do think that there's a question about how good he's going to be. Like, you know, Nick Bosa had injuries as well. Nick Bosa had an amazing year towards ACL, right? And then came back. Nick Bosa immediately hit a level that I don't think we've seen from Chase Young in the NFL yet. Um, Chase Young has looked good, but he hasn't looked that good. He hasn't looked the well-rounded pass rusher that he was in college or the, the sheer dominance level at that point. And given the injuries since then, it makes sense for Washington to hedge or to potentially walk away given the investment that they've already made in their defensive line. Like, I just don't think they can rely on him going forward. So you're right. Like, the actual grades have not been have not been special year one he has an 87 overall pff grade almost 900 total snaps into the playoffs very good run defense grade and a good pass rush grade in 75 range the next year we only got to see him for under 500 snaps and similar good run defense pretty good pass rush last year only 117 snaps barely even saw him solid grades bullet you know below average pass rush grade but it was only 63 rushes so there's not much to glean from that chase young um he showed up and he didn't play until week 16 he just played the last three games of the year so i look i think there's if he's healthy i still think there's a lot there even though the pass rush grades haven't been elite i think you're getting that solid run defender who is capable of being an elite pass rusher i don't think he's lost that ability we saw guys like khalil mack uh in year one was an elite run defender way back in 2014, elite run defender and a good pass rusher. And then by year two, he developed. We haven't like we haven't even had 600 snaps of Chase Young since his rookie season mm-hmm. to see that jump from a pass rush standpoint. So I think it's there. And so I'm calling teams. I'm, I mean, I'm calling Washington. If I'm a, a Super Bowl caliber team, I'm calling to see if I could steal Chase Young for a year because he's he's basically going to hit free agency and if he goes out and has a a very good 2023 season chase young might be the hottest commodity on the market next year at this time i'm going to take a chance i'm going to see if washington's willing to give him up for this year and if i'm you know i mean kansas city's just added a whole bunch to their line but i don't know buffalo add him with vaughn miller and gregory rousseau i mean if you're trying to win a super bowl i'm calling washington about chase young for this year and seeing if I can steal him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's definitely an intriguing reclamation project for teams either now or down the line. What I, I When you watch his tape, and in particular you watch his pressure, he doesn't win around the edge in the NFL. Almost all of his wins are inside counter moves, and he hasn't shown that ability to get around the edge and to beat tackles for speed and for uh, quickness and with, you know, ghost moves, the things around the, the corner that really elite NFL edge rushers have to have. Now, being able to win inside is useful as well, but it's called an inside counter for a reason. It's supposed to be a counter to something. And if you don't have the thing that you're countering, you are by definition a one-dimensional pass rusher at the next level. And while there is a place for that, it's not, you don't get put into the category of the Nick Bosa's, the Micah Parsons, the Miles Garrett's of the world, if you can't beat tackles around the corner. So, yeah, look, at Chase Young, it's important to sort of rewind. Are you talking recent tape, or are you talking like back? Uh, all of his NFL well? tape. Yeah. All of his NFL tape is consistent. His wins almost all come from those inside moves. He very rarely wins around the edge with speed. Um, but it's worth rewinding and sort of remembering just how good Chase Young was as a prospect when he was coming out. You know, I had somebody on Twitter complaining that we'd said that he, that Will Anderson wasn't at that level, and they were like, oh, actually, he's had more production because he had, you know, more cumulative sacks and pressures and tackles for loss, et cetera. But he did it on a vastly larger number of snaps than Chase Young over his career. Chase Young, during his best season, 
had a pass rush win rate, I think, of like 27.9, something like that, like a 28%, which is as good as you're ever going to see, like absolutely nuts. His pass rush grade for his college career was 95 point something, which is, again, lunacy. He was basically, from a pure rushing standpoint, probably the best pass rusher on the edge we had seen at the college level. Now, you can argue that there were guys that have faced a tougher slate of competition, but for sheer production, we had never seen anybody better than Chase Young. So he was better than the Bosa brothers, better than Miles Garrett, you know, better than anybody else you want to put out there. And then, so given the, uh, the uh, success rate we've seen from PFF college production, PFF college grading at, as a pass rusher moving to the NFL, we felt really, really good about what he would be at the next level. And that first year started off in the right direction, you know, looked good, not great, good. Um, and then unfortunately got injured and we never got to see him kind of take a step forward. But I do think he needs to take that step forward because he has been reasonably one-dimensional as a pass rusher in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all, that's all fair analysis. I mean, it's good to, it is good to rewind. He was, he was absolutely Bosa Garrett level of prospect from a production standpoint. If not higher. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> and presumably, he, we didn't actually get to see him work out, but presumably from a workout standpoint, had he, had he worked out, it would, have been, it would have been really good. So that's why, I mean, there's a degree to which priors matter in the NFL. You know, if things haven't necessarily panned out, whatever, if, if you need to rewind and sort of remind yourself where this guy was when he was coming into the NFL, there are going to be teams that have never had a higher, you know, prospect grade on an edge rusher than Chase Young, at, you know, over the last 10 years or whatever. So if you're looking at the NFL going, oh, who would be interested in Chase Young given what we've seen from his career so far? There are going to be teams that sort of go, okay, open the file on Chase Young. What does it say? And it's going to say, like, this is the best edge rusher prospect that's come into the league in a decade. Um, so despite the fact that the NFL career hasn't worked out so far to a huge degree, injuries, maybe there's been some potential still untapped, there are going to be interested teams because of how good a prospect he was. Yeah, I mean, if I'm trying to win a Super Bowl, I would do it. Again, I think, um, I mean, Washington, it's also telling, as much as I would, I would love to take the chance on Chase Young, it's also telling that Washington chose Deron Payne over him. Right. It's a different position. Deron Payne is, you know, 320-plus pounds. They move him around the defensive line. He had a ton of sacks last year, even though his pass rush grade wasn't as good. I mean, they, they saw a lot of production from Deron Payne. There was no way that they, that they could pay Chase Young because Montez Sweat has been a top five most valuable edge in the league as well, quietly, over the last four or five years. Montez Sweat needs to get paid. Jonathan Allen's already been paid, and Deron Payne just got paid in Washington. So it also doesn't hurt for Washington to just have a motivated one more year of Chase Young, and they let him walk, essentially, and you know pick up a comp pick or whatever it might be. But I would still call Washington and see if I can get Chase Young in the building because they'd still they have so much invested in the defensive line and still more to do uh when it comes to the commanders up front um any other names you want to do you want me to, i'll just read off a couple more of the names we can talk about the more interesting ones um i mentioned devon kinlaw the niners declined austin jackson dolphins offensive tackle and guard declined caleb on chase on edge from the jaguars declined jalen rager formerly of the eagles now of the vikings uh, Kenneth Murray, the linebacker from the Chargers. Cesar Ruiz, the guard from the Saints. Jordan Brooks, the linebacker from the Seahawks. Patrick Queen, linebacker from the Ravens. Noah Igbenogany, cornerback from the Dolphins. And then running back Clyde Edwards-Alaire from the Chiefs. So there's some obvious ones that just, like, didn't work out. You know, so obviously they were going to be declined. I mean, Jalen Rager's fifth-year option not being picked up is not a shock to anybody. Um, Mekhi Becton with his injuries. C.J. Henderson, the team already moved on from him. Um, uh, Austin Jackson the team hasn't moved on from him but he struggled so there's a bunch I think that makes sense as obvious declines then there are the ones where the team at least outwardly still talks about them as being good players and yet they decline the option so is this a so the linebackers in particular Kenneth Murray and Jordan Brooks and Patrick Queen I guess although he's the team appears to be moving on from him so that's maybe less shocking but like Pete Carroll and the Seahawks still talk about Jordan Brooks as being one of the best linebackers in the NFL. Is this a reflection of simply the value at linebacker when you're talking about the fifth-year option? Like that's making them 
monster money at that point and teams just don't want a part of that like is that what we're dealing with here or are we looking at a situation where (laughs) shockingly what a coach says in public is not actually what he thinks when it comes to Pete Carroll I don't (coughs) I don't buy all the rah-rah stuff I mean I can't remember who it was was it Jaron Reed a couple years ago where two weeks after Pete Carroll called him one of the best three techniques in the league Hmm. he got released and also, you know, remember, and, like and I think ago. it was after he had like a 10 sack season and we were like, oh, the pass rush grade isn't that great. I, I forget. I don't know if it was Reed. It was somebody where Pete Carroll's like, this is the best three tech in the league. Right. And then they released him. And like a year ago, we were talking about Drew Locke as being in like, head, neck to neck, neck and neck with uh, yeah. Geno Smith for the quarterback job. And then Drew Locke takes a seat in the bench and, and Geno ends up getting And I'm job. not saying Pete's lying. I think he he truly believes like everybody's the greatest thing ever. Like that's part of his, his shtick. Like that's part of his motivational ploy and all that stuff but at some point they have to sit down at the table and say you know and John Schneider has to make a decision is this guy worth the money so I think it's a value thing I also think they do kind of like Jordan Brooks he's been a good run defender kind of as expected out of Texas Tech I think they probably think he's better in coverage than we've thought Mm -hmm. over the last couple years but you know take that for what it's worth but Brooks was like one of the most surprising first round picks yeah but has been solid you know he's been pretty good for the Seahawks the other surprising first-round picks, though, like Austin Jackson. Remember, there were four big-name tackles in that class. Andrew Thomas, Jedrick Wills, Tristan Wirfs, throw Mekhi Becton in there. And Austin Jackson felt like an afterthought in that group of tackles, and he's played kind of like an afterthought in that group of tackles. So when we talk about when we're analyzing reaches and all that stuff this week for the draft, like Austin Jackson was a serious reach at pick 18 for the Dolphins. You could argue Noah Igbenogany, even though I ta- – I mean, personally, I talked myself into the pick because I thought he, at the time he was going to play in the slot with Xavier Howard and Byron Jones on the outside. But Igbenogany at pick 30 was also probably a bit of a reach for the for the Dolphins as well. So they had three first-round picks that year and uh, after Tua, and uh, two out of the three uh, did not pan out well at all for the Dolphins, either – just terrible play or just not even seeing the field. Yeah, and we really like the fit of Igbenogany in that defense, and he just hasn't worked out now. it's Man coverage guy. Well, did, yeah, yeah, it's different now that they've changed schemes, but at the time that felt like a, a good pick by them, and it just, it just hadn't worked out. I mean, this is the reality of the draft every year, that even when you like a player, you like the fit, sometimes you're going to miss. Uh, Javon Kinlaw, another interesting one for the Niners. I thought he was a very good prospect. Yeah. I and mean, I don't think it was crazy to watch him – go at 14 uh the thing i the the interesting nugget there was that the niners had just traded deforest buckner yep for pick 14 i still think it's a good business move to draft deforest buckner get four years out of him and then trade him but they tried to directly replace him with a clone and javon kinlaw has been nothing like deforest buckner since that point that's the cautionary tale of that methodology of roster construction right there are it's happened a few times in recent years where a team has traded away an impact star player and tried to replace him like for like with the pick, essentially the biggest pick that you get back for that deal. The Vikings did it perfectly. They went from Stefan Diggs to Justin Jefferson, get a player at least as good and obviously a fraction of the cost. So that's, that's the perfect scenario. We trade him away, we use the first round pick, we draft his replacement and we end up at least as good if not better and a hell of a lot cheaper. The 49ers tried to do it with DeForest Buckner going to Javon Kinlaw, and it's basically been a disaster. So that's the problem with that line of thought. Now, your point is fair, which is, look, even if it's a disaster from that point on, you got four years out of Buckner and you flip him for effectively the same cost, you made, out, you made a profit. You know, it's good business. But you have to factor in what you're going to turn that pick into, and there's there's a reason you pay those guys in the NFL a large amount of money because you're paying for the certainty. You, you're essentially gambling the saving that you're going to make contract-wise on the uncertainty of the player that you're drafting, and that's the risk. We'll talk about the defensive tackle market in just a couple minutes here because there's, uh, there's some movement there. But um, the, other, the other name I wanted to highlight here, Cesar Ruiz at pick 24. Uh, the Saints drafted him essentially to step in at guard. If anybody was listening to our day three show, Seth Galino was talking about uh, at the time, the Saints, they were moving on from Larry Warford, Warford, who mm-hmm. was like pretty productive. Yeah. Very good guard. It was the end of his career. I think he was, he was ready to hang him up anyway. But the Saints 
are just a fascinating team because they take a lot of risks. They they trade up for for uh, high upside type of players, but they were going to try to plug and play Cesar Ruiz while they're in this Super Bowl window with Drew Brees. And Ruiz steps in at guard, and he had a couple years of poor play, and he finally you know improved last year and got better, which is a common thing. We see this a lot with offensive linemen. They break out their their trajectory starts to go up right we start to see the upper trajectory year three year four and Ruiz was like this plug and play guard is what the Saints were hoping for during a Super Bowl window and they didn't get it right so it just I think that goes back to like the risk of when you're in that Super Bowl window saying we're going to rely on these young offensive linemen I think it's okay if it's one guy out of five but um it was interesting because Ruiz was really more of a long-term play for the Saints because you knew he needed some development, and now we're at that point where he's developed pretty well, and they've turned down the the fifth year option there at pick twenty four. Yeah, I mean Ruiz has, has struggled. The, the Saints, the risk with the Saints approach is they really, really rely on their ability to identify good starting players at the top of the draft, and they're they're good at it. I mean they're probably the best team in the NFL right now at being able to actually correctly identify talent. But even they are going to miss, and when you miss. Like they take that approach of the exact opposite of the thing we preach, which is actually going into the draft needing to fill one or two starters with their first couple of picks. And they're okay with that. And they're, in fact, not only are they okay with it, but they will willingly lean into that and trade up to go get specific players that they know they can plug in and start. But when you miss on that, you're basically screwed because you took that approach. You need that guy to be an impact player. And then when it doesn't work out, not only are you kind of stuck with it, or sorry, not only can you not really do anything else about it in terms of bringing in other guys to make it work because you've left it so late, but you're kind of stuck with it because you invested a first-round pick plus whatever you traded likely to make the first-round pick happen, and you're kind of there with the guy's entire rookie contract before you can realistically pull back and fix your mistake. So Ruiz feels like one of those guys that could be a good player over the next few years, but potentially somewhere else besides New Orleans. All right, two more names I want to highlight here. Caleb on Chase on. As we're coming out of dra- draft season here, Sam, and the, as I'm pounding the table for make sure you look at production. Make sure you look at production, not from a sack total or tackle for loss standpoint, but from a PFF lens. Look at pass rush grade, look at run defense grade, and roll that into the mix when you're projecting not all NFL play, all, all these college players, but edge rushers in particular. Caleb on Chase on was not a productive college player. Has not been a productive NFL player. I thought he was a. There were massive red flags. Um, another guy too that when I watched the film, I'm like, man, there are some spectacular rushes on here. He had some pass rushes against Samuel Cosme, who ended up becoming a pretty good tackle in the NFL. And you know, bull rushes and these these highlight real plays from Caleb on Chase on. He just didn't do it enough. And the yeah. pass rush grade and the run defense grade showed that. And he just, you know, has not produced at the NFL level. I mean, he's a classic example of the co- why you should focus on playing the odds. Like, the, the the Jags essentially looked at this guy, looked at his highlight reel, really. I mean, obviously, they looked at all this tape. But the thing that drew them in was the highlight reel, the stuff you're talking about. So look at his highlight reel, look at his athletic potential, and then just decide that he can be a better NFL player than he was in college. The reality is that very rarely happens. Sometimes it happens. You get Danelle Hunter. Most of the time it doesn't. So if you're taking a guy like that, and I'm not saying you never draft those guys, but there's plenty of the players that we've talked about, you know, in the last few days reviewing the draft or during the shows, you take them on day two or day three where the picks aren't as expensive and you're not really having high expectations for what you're going to get out of those picks anyway. That's when you roll the dice on a guy with athleticism and the tools but hasn't done it in the college level yet because if it doesn't work out, it didn't cost you anything. You don't take them in the first round. In the first round, you need a guy who not only has the athletic tools to be a good NFL player, but has already shown the ability to do it in the college level where the competition is lower and you expect players to dominate. So if something, if one of those two things is missing, it's a massive risk to take that guy in the first round. And Chason, I think, is the perfect example of essentially just getting too clever and deciding that the rules don't apply and sometimes the rules don't apply again we've talked about this all the time like the the genius is in knowing when to break the rules and when to violate the the standard practice and say this guy genuinely is special enough that we ignore something that would normally be a rule of thumb but 
there was nothing in Chase on tape that said he was that guy. You know, even if you love what he did, even if you were drawn in by the highlight reel plays, there wasn't enough of them for you to say, you know what? Yeah, forget what we know about the drafting. We're going to take this guy, no. and he's going to he's going to chip, prove everyone wrong. Because a lot of people don't don't look at the data enough, yeah. and they just you know they just use their if you just use your eyes, if you just use the scouting aspect of it, you're going to miss there. But, but you should lean on the data again more at some positions than others. And at edge defender, if you're not ticking the production box, it's a massive risk in the first round. And for example, I, I still wouldn't, I mean, certainly not number one overall, but you can at least make the argument that Trayvon Walker was that unicorn where you throw out the rules because never seen an athletic profile like that before. You know, there's no comp for yeah. Trayvon Walker because there's never been anybody that has that full, complete, you know, spider chart worth of insane measurables and uh, movement and size and all those kinds of things. So you can at least make the argument that, okay, this guy is special enough that we throw out the rules. Now, so far, it hasn't worked out for Trayvon Walker, and maybe you want to stick to the rules even then. But at least you can make that argument. There really was no argument for Caleb on Chason in terms of we need to, we need to ignore the quite obvious uh, production that isn't there. All right. The last name I want to mention here, Clyde Edwards-Alaire. The running back from the, the Chiefs. last name you want to mention? I got another one we got to talk about. All right, you do that first before no, we no, get no. to it. No, no, no. Give me your CEH. Okay, just because feels like we're having the same conversation again with Jameer Gibbs. The Chiefs at the time. Oh, by the way, one of the suggestions was that we should go back through like a recent draft. Everybody was saying, you can't grade the draft the week of the draft. Three years. Do it after three years. Do it after four years. We could do that. We can go back pick by pick of the 2018, 19, 20 draft and go back and say what we thought at the time and where we were right, wrong, whatever it might be. We could do that this offseason as well. But Clyde Edwards-Alaire, what was happening at the time? The Chiefs had just won their first Super Bowl, a dominant season. You still have Travis Kelsey. You still have Tyree Kill. Mahomes is at his peak. And they go with Clyde Edwards-Alaire at pick 32. And they, the Chiefs, at the time, we were saying, how many, how many championships are they going to win? Six? Five? Are they the next Patriots? What are they? The fall, so they get Clyde Edwards-Alaire. The Chiefs loved him. He's a playmaker. We're hearing a lot of the same stuff. He reminded Andy Reid and some of the other people in the front office of Brian Westbrook, who Andy Reid had in the mm. early 2000s, who is this great pass-catching running back. The Chiefs are already set with all their playmakers. Of course, Edwards-Alaire now just adds another dynamic weapon to the run game. He's going to make the run game more effective. He's a great pass-catcher. You can line him up out wide. He's an offensive weapon. Clyde Edwards-Alaire, and it just has not panned out for various reasons. He hasn't even won the starting job in most seasons for the Chiefs. And so this comes back to two things I want to highlight here. Hindsight is, is it's really easy to see things, they say. The next two picks off the board were wide receiver T. Higgins to the Bengals, wide receiver Michael Pittman Jr. to the Colts, even a few picks later, LaVisca Chenault, the wide receiver out of Colorado going to the Jags. I think any of those guys obviously would have been a better fit. When we talk about picking valuable positions, what happened a year later when the Chiefs lost in the Super Bowl? Their offensive line fell apart due to injury. You couldn't predict that, but it fell apart. And then they were hurt because they just didn't have a number three option, right? Mahomes was so locked into Ty Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey. Everything ran through those guys. They didn't have a number three option. And at the time, I remember saying, please take more receivers. Like if, if you're going to do Mahomes well in the next few years, keep loading up at playmaker so that we don't have to see what Mahomes looks like post Tyreek and post Kelsey. Now last year we saw it and it was fine and Mahomes looked great. I just, I, I think the Chiefs could have done a better job of future-proofing the roster there rather than taking a running back, which was absolutely a luxury. You don't have luxury picks because immediately the Chiefs had more needs the next year that, you know, they didn't have the previous season. So just didn't work out and it goes back to that running back with your top selection that high being so risky i mean also though even if you want to say they were in the position to have a luxury pick i mean they left jonathan taylor sitting there to draft clyde edwards Hilaire in the first round true like they just like they but, just missed the talent but here's what i think is the more important part since clyde edwards Hilaire has been there they found isaiah pacheco in the seventh sure they found jarek mckinnon off the waiver wire where he had nine touchdowns through the air last year. Like the Jameer Gibbs discussion that we had the other day. He's a playmaker. He's a weapon. He's this. He's that. If Jameer Gibbs has a, has a year like Jarek McKinnon has, 
it's going to feel like a huge win for Jameer Gibbs. He caught nine touchdowns. But you find Jarek McKinnons, and you find a James White, and you find these uber receiving backs in other places as well, not just in the first round. Yeah, I mean, I do think that that Jameer Gibbs is a better prospect than Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was when he was drafted. Like the, Agreed. Part of the big draw for that pick was, okay, it's a running back in the first round. It's bad process. But think what a good pass-catching running back could be in this, in this Kansas City offense with Mahomes and Andy Reid and blah, blah, blah. Like It was excitement about what Edwards-Hilaire could be within this offense. Now, it turns out it can't even be that. So it's just bad across the board. But Gibbs is a better prospect than that. But generally speaking, I think your point is sound, which is, look, even when you think you have that guy, most of the time you don't. Like, is Gibbs dramatically better than the other running backs of that style that have come along in the last decade? And the answer to that is almost certainly not. Even, even for what we know now on paper before we even see him in the NFL, and then the chances are we haven't even got that right, and when we haven't got it right, it's going to go in the other direction. So it's just not good process start to finish. He could be Javid Best. He could. Wasn't he good before the injuries? Yeah. Concussions? Uh-huh. Super fast. There's a whole bunch of those guys. Like, I used to buy into the speed all the time. Yeah. I thought I Kevin mean, Jones was going to be unbelievable. Is he better than C.J. Spiller? Ooh, C.J. Spiller. And would you draft C.J. Spiller with the 12th overall pick in any given draft? Probably the Bills not. did, right? Didn't they get him at 10? Yeah, so he was high. They got him high. But, like, but again, so that's an example of, like, have we learned? Or we just repeat? do we just repeat this cycle once we get comparable prospects? Like... I don't think I'm not sure CJ Spiller would be drafted as high as he was today. I think we've I think the league has learned more since that point. But is I mean if you get CJ Spiller's career and I think they are comparable prospects, would that be worth the 12th overall pick for Detroit? I would say probably not. All right, uh, what other name did you want to talk about? Isaiah Simmons. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, we should talk more about Simmons. So the eighth overall pick, Isaiah Simmons, this absolute freak show, six foot four, two hundred and thirty-eight pounds, uh, a guy who ostensibly kind of played safety, I guess, at, at Clemson, but in this weird role. He legitimately played everything there. Yes, but he was, was near the line of scrimmage. He was overhang over the slot. He played some legitimate true free safety snaps. He did do right. it all. But most of the time was playing some kind of overhang slash safety hybrid role that only exists in college and doesn't really exist in the NFL. And because he's six foot four, two hundred and thirty eight pounds, the NFL is like, well he's an off the ball linebacker. That's that's what he is in the NFL. That you don't that's your size. They they very much tend to take guys that play weird positions, just look at their size and jam them into that receptacle in the NFL defense, like they're those games a kid, the toddlers play for. You know, the star goes into the star hole, the square goes into the square hole, the circle goes into the circle hole. Isaiah Simmons was linebacker shaped, therefore he goes into the linebacker gap in the defense. Only he's not a linebacker. He just isn't. He doesn't play like one. And it's taken them. They, and funny thing is, they kind of repeated this already. Like they did it with Hassan Reddick. Hassan Reddick is linebacker shaped, therefore Hassan Reddick plays linebacker. Like, well, okay, but he's an edge rusher. He's, on, he's not edge rusher shaped, but he's an edge rusher. So that they, they, they're just repeating the thing. They did this stance already. They took a guy, jammed him into a position he doesn't belong, and then eventually moved him back to the position he was supposed to be playing all along, and he's played much better there. You liked him as a safety. Simmons. Yeah, like a, yes, right? Like as a cover three strong safety who's playing yeah, close I mean, to the line of scrimmage, but he's a he's, safety more than a linebacker. He's some form of defensive back. So over the last three years, the Cardinals have moved him from linebacker. Last year, he was effectively a slot corner at 240 pounds and yeah. six foot four. So he's now in this world where I think the rest of the league looking at this draft, they hate players like that. I don't know what to do with him. He plays some form of defensive back hybrid, and we're not good at that. So I just don't want him. So the Cardinals decline that spot, even though I think he might actually end up emerging as quite a good slot nickel big safety hybrid thing whatever you want to like if a team i don't know where what team would you want to put him on that would best know what to do with that isaiah simmons yeah i mean i think everybody thinks well belichick will figure it out but right and there's some mileage to that i mean you yeah know, what he's done with duggar like Patrick Chung before that, he knows sort of what to do with those He players. just grabbed Jabril Peppers last year. I mean, Peppers yeah. was that guy. I mean, look, Derwin James had the same ability. 
and I I fell in love with Isaiah Simmons, not to the same level as Derwin James, but I think similar. I mean, I, I really thought Isaiah Simmons was going to come in and be the defensive weapon that was needed for right now. While offenses are moving tight ends and running backs around, that Simmons could do all that stuff. And skill set-wise, he does. Size and movement skills and athleticism. Um, so I think personally, I think I overrated a lot of the plays he made, right? I mean, the fact that he he was an explosive blitzer. He wasn't a pass rusher, right? Let's like I, There's going to be a lot of people who want to turn any linebacker type of player into a Micah. Oh, he could be Micah Parsons. There's a huge difference between pass rushing and blitzing. Simmons could blitz. He did that last year. He had a bunch of forced fumbles and sacks and explosive blitzes, right? So that part's good. He's got the skill set, the size to cover running backs, to cover tight ends. But, like, remember the first game he was completely lost just um, against oh, the Shannon. Niners? Yeah. He he doesn't have a good feel. I mean, um, I think Brandon Staley was mentioning it when he was talking about um, just linebackers in general. There's so much you have to learn with your eyes. Yeah. You're in a different position. And when you can't see the game quickly, I mean, that's why veteran linebackers are better. That's why year six, year seven linebackers who are slower are better than athletic linebackers who don't know what they're seeing. So... Yeah, I don't know what I would do with Simmons, but I always have this imaginary role where it's like, hey, go cover this tight end man-to-man. That's it. Just go do that. Cover these running backs man-to-man. I'm going to blitz you a little bit. I'll keep you in some simple zones. I, but I think we all came to this conclusion that like a, a, a strong safety role where he's not playing deep a ton would probably be the best fit for Simmons. But like I don't know what you do. Like Derwin James has figured it out because they've they've used him in a variety of roles and he's been awesome no matter where they put him, even when they just put him as a traditional strong safety. Maybe simplifying things for Simmons initially, play strong safety, and then we'll expand from there would have been the, the way to go. I also think, by the way, if you just plugged him in as a safety, like if you just got over your preconceptions that a guy that's 6'4", 240 pounds plays linebacker and just said, actually, you know what, he's a safety, that's where he plays – put him in any defense in the NFL, he's a better safety than he is an off-the-ball linebacker, like just as a starting point. Um, but if, you, if you've determined that he has to play some kind of hybrid role because he's an unusual player, then I think he needs a different role than the one he's been with Arizona. But Simmons is another player from this list where I don't think he's in the category of this guy's just not a good player. He shouldn't – he can be a positive plus player – probably for a different team somebody and, figure yeah somebody can figure right, it out and the right team could be really interested in in an isaiah simmons reclamation project yeah i mean i, I think the um what's his face that uh hassan reddick sorry mm. the hassan reddick comp is similar completely different positions i mean it's kind of amazing that arizona did that almost consecutively yeah. and we're like well we blew this thing let's do it again I mean, I think I, at the time I made jokes where, you know, you've got these defensive coordinators who are like, man, it's so tough to adjust today's, today's NFL. You've got these big tight ends and receivers and backs are, and Debo's playing, you know, running back and all that stuff. It's really tough to match up with those guys. And then Isaiah Simmons walks into the league and he should be the answer to a lot of those things, right? He should be the answer, but maybe that's, maybe it's just difficult to do a million things well when a lot of young players should just start with doing something well. And then maybe by year three, like we saw with Simmons, when you start to expand his role and do other stuff, maybe, you know, so I think, <coughs> I think Isaiah Simmons has a chance to be a very good player over the next few years, but it's certainly been a disappointing rookie contract, especially for a guy going number eight overall. I mean, I also think that we probably oversimplify that concept of, you know, the matchup player on defense. Like yes, it's, I definitely do. Yeah, like everyone, in theory, you want a guy that can go and follow a tight end or a running back wherever they go and, and erase the matchup that is Travis Kelsey, you know, whatever. But the rules for coverage, the rules for a defensive shell, the rules for any given play are such that, that, that you don't have like sort of man marking, you know what I mean? It's not like soccer where you can, and even in soccer it's changed now where there was a time where you could just go, okay, this player is going to go and mark the opposing number 10 one-on-one. That's all he's going to do all game long. But you do that now, now you take that guy out of the rest of your shape and all of a sudden the thing doesn't work. So NFL defense is similar where if you're, you have a guy and you say, well, I want him one-on-one with Travis Kelsey all game, <laughs> even if you would want such a thing. Well, now, okay, if he's, if he's one-on-one with Kelsey, but we've called cover two, 
who fills the other gap? What do we do? Like, where does the bank fill come in? How do we adjust the defense? You can't like, literally, you literally can't run a box in one right. in, in football. <clears throat> so literally every single play call has to change to accommodate the fact that you're trying to create this one-on-one matchup. So you can definitely lean into that and sort of scheme certain things that this guy is going to move, you know, adjust your assignments essentially to try and create that one, one-on-one matchup a lot. But it can't be the defense, which is what it would be if you were trying to create that. So... I think that's why the league looks at these players, whether it's Isaiah Simmons, whether it's Brian Branch, whether it, whatever, whoever it is that's got a slightly unusual um, hybrid role within a defense and doesn't quite know how to make it work because they're thinking of what happens when we just call like vanilla cover three and now he has to be either my strong safety, my free safety, my nickel corner, my out, like he's got to be somewhere in the vanilla scheme that works. And you're like, I don't, I don't see where he fits. So I think that's why the league is looking at some of these players and de- not necessarily valuing them where we think they should be valued because they're thinking of all the plays they don't fit naturally and trying to figure out how that works. I'm guilty of this all the time. It's your fault. It's definitely me. Defensive weapon, defensive chess piece. Just most teams aren't using that. They just need a guy to fit into their system. Yeah. But yeah, you have to. I mean, if you're going to pick a guy at eight, you either have a specific plan for him, or you have a simple plan for him before you get into the specific plan. Um, so yeah, I'm interested to see Simmons and his development here in year four, and then uh, where he ends up because I think he'll be a good player. A lot of a lot of linebackers really don't figure it out until year four, five, or six either. So um, you want to get to the defensive tackles? Sure. So Dexter Lawrence, defensive tackle from the New York Giants, just signs a massive contract, four years. Uh, what was the total? A lot of money. Thirteen million guaranteed. Is that all I'm saying? Thirteen? That can't be. That right. doesn't sound. Four years, ninety million dollar contract. That's the wrong. That's the wrong breakdown here. Four years, ninety million for Dexter Lawrence. So I want to give a, like a little lay of the land for the uh, defensive tackle landscape here. The 2019 draft class was out of this world. With um, in the the guy that a lot of people thought would be the best. Has not been at Oliver, but Quinnen Williams went number thir- uh, number three overall mm-hmm. from the Jets. He still needs to get paid. Um, Ed Oliver went number nine to the Bills. Dexter Lawrence went number seventeen. Christian Wilkins went number thirteen, and then Jeffrey Simmons went number nineteen. Um, so in this world of defensive tackles, where Aaron Donald's in a different world, yeah, Chris Jones is probably in his own second tier <clears throat> right now. Who's I would it? say. <clears throat> he's in a different world relative to the humans, and then Aaron yeah. Donald is in a different world like, relative if, to everybody. When Aaron Donald retires, I think Chris Jones is the top defensive tackle, but it's not as egregious of a gap yeah. between him and the next ones. And then it's the class of 2019, where it's Dexter Lawrence and Jeffrey Simmons and Quinn and Williams. So Simmons and Lawrence have both been paid. Quinn and Williams up next. All three guys have been extremely productive, very good. Ed Oliver, I don't know if... I don't think I don't know if the Bills value him more or if the league will value him more, but uh, he has just not been as productive as those other guys. Not nearly as good against the run. Has not developed into that undersized pass rusher that maybe they had hoped at at nine overall. But I just want to give one more perspective here. Why are these guys going to get massive money? The league has not put a good defensive tackle into the league since 2019. They've put one, basically, depending on how you break down the numbers. So since the 2020 NFL draft, there has been one defensive tackle with an above-average war per season number, okay? An above-average tackle that you would want to invest in, and it's 2020 first-rounder Derek Brown, mm-hmm. who did have his fifth-year option picked up by the Panthers. And went a career year last year. Career year, and he's, and he's looking good, right? Yeah. He, in, in, developing as a pass rusher and good run defender and all that stuff. The league has not put a good defensive tackle into the league in forever. Yeah. The uh, college has not. I mean, they haven't developed. They haven't found anybody. Right. We've been <clears throat> Jalen Carter. That's why Jalen Carter was the best defensive tackle prospect since 2019. Yeah. We've had multiple. When years, all these guys have started to get paid. Multiple years where you get to the draft and you're like, where are the defensive tackles? There's nobody. I mean, Christian Barmore looked like he might be that guy, and he slipped. Um, it's just it's been bad defensive interior class after bad defensive interior class, and even this year where you're like, oh, it's a better one to come along for a long time. It's still like Jalen Carter with his legal red flags 
Kalijah Kansi with his 281-pound red flag, um, and then a gap, and then some guys like Keanu Benton who could become you know dudes down the line. But it's still not a great class. No, it's uh, it's just it's interesting because the the I always use the Shy Tuttle example. There was a whole bunch of average, you know, even um, who the the Jags just resigned. Devon Hamilton was from that draft class. He's been an average defensive tackle. 61 grade over the last few years. He was in that 2020 draft class, and the Jags just just locked him up long term. There is this um, – there's just not a lot of great defensive tackles in, left in the, in the NFL, and several of them came into the league in the same year in yeah, the 2019 draft class. Last year was fascinating because, like, every young defensive tackle that had come into the league in that period all had amazing seasons. So you look at the list of the best PFF grade – for um, interior defensive linemen last year. Chris Jones, who we talked about being in his own little world. But then it's Dexter Lawrence, Donald for the 11 games that he played, Quinnen Williams, Cameron Hayward, the one like old guy in there, Derek Brown, DeForest Buckner's in there as well, Christian Wilkins, Jeffrey Simmons. Like It's all these young guys that came in that one or two year period. All had career years last year. Derek Brown had the best year he's had. It was a sort of bizarre season of all these young guys coming good at exactly the same time so so the point i kind of wanted to raise here if you were just we talk a lot about positional value and if you were just listing positions top to bottom it's like qbs in its own world and we would say receivers up there and corners higher than we expected and edge is really high but you know even teams i talk to and the things that we do they put defensive tackle pretty low right it's in that it's kind of in that discussion with linebackers not as bad as running backs, but it's, you know, it's in that linebacker type of discussion. Not as valuable as it was years ago and all that stuff. But that's like in a vacuum. If the rest of the league is really struggling to, struggling to even find average defensive tackles and you have an elite one, does that make those players that much more valuable? So the, the money that Dexter Lawrence and Simmons and then eventually Quinn and Williams are going to get, Christian Wilkins from the, the Dolphins has been sneaky, really good uh, in that mix. Are they all worth twenty million a year? Are they all worth that twenty plus million? Because you have one, and the rest of the league has does not have one. I think they are. Yeah, I mean, we're reaching a point now where, regardless of where the correct valuation of those players is in a vacuum, the supply is becoming an issue. So that alone is driving yeah. the price up. You know, and, and you know, again, we talk a lot about value in a. I mean, I do at least in a vacuum and all that stuff. What? How does this? show itself on the field Dexter Lawrence in that playoff game against the Minnesota Vikings where he was absolutely dominant we see his uh his career grades 89 plus pass he, rush grade he's been one of the better pass rushers he, he was won, supposed to just be a run-stopping defensive tackle he for won a that game for them yes they could not block him particularly Garrett Bradbury in the middle like could not just got overwhelmed by him they late in the game he took over the way Aaron Donald takes over playoff games or Chris Jones where he just says all right now's the time I'm stopping you winning this game. The Vikings had a shot to to go down and, and win, and Dexter Lawrence just said, nope. Yeah, so I think I think the defensive tackle market, it, it is fascinating because the, the high-end elite players are making their money. A lot of average players are probably making a little bit more than you would want, but I think, I think Dexter Lawrence is worth it. I think uh, Quinnen Williams is going to be worth it. I think all those guys are worthwhile in that 20 plus even the remember the jeffrey simmons game against the rams sunday night football a couple years ago the rams super bowl year simmons was unblockable in that game i think the defensive tackle value shows up not necessarily every week Mm -hmm. but it shows up when you have those mismatches we always say creep back toward average on the offensive line when you have a weakness on the offensive line on the interior jeffrey simmons takes advantage dexter lawrence takes advantage Quinn and Williams takes advantage. That's where I think that stuff shows up. It might only show up in dominant form. Chris Jones, those 10 pressure games in the playoffs, right? Um, it might only show up a couple times a year, but I think uh, I think those high-end guys are absolutely worth, worth the big money. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that they only show up a few times a year, but I think it's in those few times a year where you have a weakness and they have one of those guys that's game-changing at that point. They show like, up in dominant fashion. Yeah. Of course, they play every week, and it's they're like, good, and you got to double-team them and all that stuff. I in, get that. In those games, those players can create wins from nowhere, like Dexter Lawrence literally preventing you winning a game. Chris Jones has had those performances where he's going to stop you winning the game because you can't block him. Aaron Donald has that pretty much every week, obviously, but 
Yeah, in, in when you have a weakness along your offensive line and you're playing a team that has one of those guys, now you're in legitimate trouble in that game, regardless of anything else that's going on. So the highest paid defensive tackles, the couple of names we haven't mentioned here as far as highest paid, Deron Payne, we mentioned earlier in the show, the commanders paid him a ton of money. Uh, Javon Hargrave got the big contract from the Niners. He's a little bit older than some of these other guys. DeForest Buckner, still making pretty good money for the Colts. Leonard Williams for the Giants. Jonathan Allen, the commanders. Vita Vea, different type, you know, big nose tackle for the Bucks. Kenny Clark, more of a nose tackle for the Packers. Um, those guys have been, they're all pretty much in a, you know, $17 million a year plus range. Eric Armstead, if you call him an interior player. But um, a lot of the good players, like Armstead's 30, Grady Jarrett's 30, Cameron Hayward's over 30, you know, over 30 years old. A lot of these players are getting older. There's these players in the late 20s that I think are carrying the mantle for this position. And um, I think those guys at 20 million is a lot better than the next tier of players when you start to see. David Onyemata, Devon Hamilton, Devon Godshaw, Grover. Those guys are still making like 10 to 12, 13 million dollars. I, I want one of these elite guys making low 20s. I'm happy with that. Mm -hmm. So Dexter Lawrence gets paid. Anything else you want to add to that? No. No, I'm good. A lot of people showed up on a Friday to watch us on YouTube. Yeah. I don't want to let them down. I hate leaving. Ever? I mean, I'm going to let you down at some point, and mm. we're going to leave at some point. So, I mean, you could just stay here live on your own. Not ever. But this Go is it. On. Anything else you want to you want to cover here on a Friday edition? Not really. I mean, we got to figure it out for next week. Now we've got a whole week's worth of shows and no draft to talk about. No draft. Do we do more draft? Just talk more draft. No. Favorite rookies of the year. You rookie gotta, of the year candidates. Oh yeah, that's right. That's what we we're going to do today. We didn't yeah. do that. That's, we got next week's show. Yeah. Rookie of the year. Bold predictions. Who had the best offseason? A lot of fun stuff mm -hmm. coming up. All right. Well, we appreciate everybody for tuning in this entire week. Go check out all of our draft recaps. And, uh, yeah, let us know what other great football discussions do you want us to have. NFL podcast at pff.com for suggestions, anything we could do, anything we haven't done before, like new ideas we could try. You know, we've had there's, – there's stuff we're going to be hitting, right? Obviously, we'll be talking about reasons for optimism, reasons for pessimism for every team, all the things that people liked in the past. But this is going to be an off-season for some experimentation. We've got five shows a week, in, and that's new. We've never had that before. So we've got more content to come up with this year, and some of that content is going to be new stuff we haven't done before. So if you want to hear us, you know, ranking football films, movies, movies, that's what you call them in, the, in America, right? Not films. Both work. Okay, both. So, you know, here is people, ranking. People did call us out. We did lie. We said we were going to talk about recent signings. Jordan Love was a recent signing. Jordan Love. Dexter Lawrence was a recent re-signing. True. Extension. Oh, Donovan Smith. Donovan Smith and Puna Ford. Yes. Okay, the let's big do ones. that before we get out. Donovan Smith to the Chiefs. Yeah. I like it a lot. It's all right. It's a creep back toward $9 million for him this year. It's, it's not insignificant money. I like the... I just want the mental picture that they watched Juwan Taylor take sets from the left side for the first time like ever and looked at it for five times and went, no, that's not going to work. We get on the phone to Donovan. Look, we stayed. We stayed. We're doing long. So Donovan Smith yeah. will give you average pass blocking at left tackle, average play. Maybe. I mean, he didn't last year. He was right? hurt. He was playing hurt last year. He's mm -hmm. been on this upward trajectory. Of, I think that's a fine move at left tackle. Keeps Juwan Taylor at right tackle. Which is important. Again, I'm still like I'm still explaining to people they don't all get it that the left tackle, right tackle thing. It is it's an equivalent position both from a value and difficulty standpoint. It is not more difficult to play left tackle in the NFL. They're not facing harder rushers. They're not uh, protecting a more important side of the quarterback. The blind side is a fake notion. It's not really blind. When Patrick Mahomes throws to the left, guess what? Guess who's protecting his blind side? Sam. It's Jawan Taylor, the right tackle. He's blinded. You can get blindsided from both sides. So keep Jawan Taylor at right tackle. That's smart. Moving him to left tackle. Look, when you can move people from left to right, it happens all the time. But the further you get into a guy's NFL career, it is riskier. I would never do that with Jawan Taylor. So keeping him on the right side, having Donovan Smith as the stopgap at left tackle, 
is smart. And it doesn't affect comp picks or any of that stuff. So you do it after the draft. It was a smart move by the Chiefs. And the movement from left to right tends to happen when a guy has at least been on the other side in his college career. Juwan yes. Taylor has it's usually basically, early. Yes. Yeah. Juwan Taylor has basically never played the left side. Don't move Alejandro Villanueva from left tackle to right tackle in year seven. <laughs> don't move Donald Penn from left to right tackle in year 14. Just don't do that stuff. Don't do it late in someone's career. Mm-hmm. Isaiah Wynn in year five in his NFL career. Why would you do that? The, the results are never good when you do it deep into a player's career. But yeah. you can do it early in their career. So keep Juwan Taylor at right tackle. I like that Donovan Smith yeah. move. I mean, it's a fine move. It's The biggest boon for it is honestly keeping Juwan Taylor at right tackle, which was something that they should have been viewing at the first, like in the first place. I'm not sure why there was ever the plan to make him play left tackle. Uh, Puna Ford, I thought was a, you know, a solid move for the, for the Bills as well. Yeah, good. Um, He's been a you know like a, a pretty good run stopper throughout his career. He was not good as good last year. Um, flash some pass rush ability. When you talk about depth up front, I think he can give you a good five or six hundred snaps, especially on early downs, especially when Ed Oliver in particular has not been good against the run. I think Puna Ford can can upgrade on early downs here. Well, the, the two players that Buffalo had last year, who you would consider a run first type of defensive tackles, Jordan Phillips and Tim Settle. Both had PFF run defense grades. They were the same. They were 53.5, which yeah. is bad. Tim Settle in particular, like, I really like that signing. I thought no, given Ford what Ford wasn't seen, good last year, but all of his previous years were good. Yeah, given what we'd seen from Tim Settle pre, prior to that, that felt like a signing that could be an absolute steal. You get a guy that's flashed in 300 snaps, looked like he could be a really good player, take a step forward with a bigger role. And he just wasn't. Like, it was the probably the worst season of his career in Buffalo. So if Puna Ford can come in and give you upgraded play over what Phillips or Tim Settle was giving you last year, it's huge. I mean, even if it doesn't affect the play of Ed Oliver or whatever, it's, a, it's an upgrade for them and a good move. Look at that. We gave some good analysis on the signings. Rocky Sin to the Baltimore Ravens. I don't have a ton of feels there. Former second-round pick. Yeah, very man-specific a corner like is a guy that does not thrive particularly well in zone coverage uh needs to be playing in man coverage i wonder like a lot of people were immediately questioning does that mean marcus peters is officially done they're not going to bring him back because rocky sin signed does it mean anything for marlon humphrey probably not with the latter maybe for the former still still feels weird not seeing jimmy smith on the ravens depth chart at all times and uh for the last 17 years being like hey jimmy smith still a good player keep Mm. him healthy he's a good player there um yeah, the Ravens may have maybe a little weaker at corner than they have been in the past, at least on paper. I know they've had a ton of injuries the last couple of years and and all that, but on paper they usually roll into the season very, very deep. It's Marlon Humphrey, Rocky Sin, Javon Mullen, Brandon Stevens. Might have some work to do there. A little bit more to maybe more to do in Baltimore at corner. Mm-hmm. All right, look at that. We did recent signings as well. That's it for us. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back again on Monday with more PFF NFL podcast.